Tonight we're thinking about discipleship, let it show. Uh, we're looking actually in four chapters from Bonhoeffer's book. And just a quick recap where we have been considering already in regards to this important subject of discipleship. We were thinking, first of all, about cheap grace versus costly grace. And cheap grace is a term that is used for those who think that they can be saved and really their salvation doesn't have to change their lives. That's cheap grace, and it's a, a false Christianity. And Bonhoeffer emphasized that because the cross has cost Jesus so much, we have to be those. It has to cost us to follow Jesus. And Jesus spoke about counting the cost to follow him. And then we thought about taking up the cross. Jesus said, take up the cross and follow me. And being a Christian, being a disciple, means dying to self dying to sin, those who carried a cross, they were only going to one place, they were going to be executed, they were going to die. And so, being a disciple, there's this ongoing battle because we, we don't die easily, and sin and self have to die in our lives of God's grace day by day. And then we're thinking on Sunday morning about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemaker. And one of the things he emphasized that the Beatitudes, they're not commands, just that you try and keep these commandments. They are a reality that should become more and more evident in someone's life because of the incarnation, because God has become flesh in Jesus Christ. And God has become flesh, in a sense, in us. That he comes and lives in our hearts and lives. And we have that relationship with Christ. One of the consequences of that relationship is that we have become the, the poor in spirit. We become the meek. We become the merciful. So that's sort of where we've been so far. So far. Now we're, we're continuing looking at the Sermon on the Mountain and the whole idea of discipleship. And the first thing we're going to see this evening is salt and light here in verses 13 to 16. Some very familiar portions of Scripture indeed. And Bonhoeffer says this, Jesus calls them the salt of the earth. The disciples, that is to say, are the highest good, the supreme value which the earth possesses. For without them, it cannot live. They are the salt that sustains the earth. For their sake, the world exists. Yes, for the sake of these, the poor, ignoble, and weak, whom the world rejects. Now, that's a fantastic statement. That is emphasizing the importance of who we are as Christians and how important we are to the world. I just think of uh, Abraham when he's praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember he began, if there are 50 righteous people, and right down to 10. And God would have spurred those cities if there had been 10 of his people, 10 righteous people in a right relationship with him. And that's what it means to be a salt. It's preserving this world. It's protecting this world. And Christians who are so often increasingly despised, so often Christians are holding back the wrath of God and judgment on the community that we live in. Uh, think of how Ezekiel speaks about how God looks for those who will stand in the gap. That's part of being salt, that we preserve this world. We preserve the community we live in by pleading for God's mercy. 
But what does it mean to be salt a wee bit more? Bonhoeffer says this, ye are the salt. Jesus does not say you must be the salt. It is not for the disciples to decide whether they will be the salt of the earth, for they are so whether they like it or not. The call of Christ makes those who respond to it the salt of the earth in their total existence. And so Bonhoeffer Center, it's not that if we're Christians, we decide whether we'll be salt or not. We are the salt. And so being salt is not so much something that we do. It's about who we are. Now, going on to light, similarly in regards to light, he says this, they are already the light and the call has made them so. Nor does Jesus say, you have the light. The light is not an instrument which has been put into their hands, such as their preaching. It is the disciples themselves. You are the light in your whole existence, provided you remain faithful to your calling. Now, in being salt and being light, of course, it's important about things that we do, and there are things we have to do. We must be faithful to Christ, faithful to his calling to be disciples. But the key thing about being salt and light is not primarily what we do, it is who we are in Jesus. And the more we are transformed into the likeness of Christ as we grow in holiness, as we grow through the, the means of grace, the fact that we are salt and light will become more and more evident. So it's realizing and it's our lives in a sense applying, being applied to our lives, the reality of who we are that should make the difference. And the more and more we sit under the means of grace, prayer, the study of God's word, the teaching of God's word, the more and more the reality of us being salt and light will be evident. That is why one of my great passions is simply to get more and more of those who profess faith in Christ to really engage in God's word on a Sunday morning, but also a Sunday evening at the midweek, because the more and more we are transformed, the more and more effective we will be salt and light. Because being salt and light is about who we are. It's about how Jesus has changed us and continues to change us into being salt and light. And in a sense, we don't even have to try and get people to do anything to be salt and light. It's as God's word is let loose in them, they will supernaturally be that salt and light. If you look at the Acts chapter 2 and forward from there at the early church, there were no great plans or no great schemes about what they would do. But the power of the, that early church was who these people were. It was as they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the prayer, to the fellowship, to the breaking of, prayer, of bread, the reality of who they were became more and more evident. The reality of them being salt and light was more and more apparent for people to see. And so who they were 
the power of Christ, didn't it? Just let them loose in that community. And it wasn't that they had to decide, I'm going to be salt, I'm going to be light here. They were so consumed by Jesus, so consumed by the Christ who lived in them, even when they were persecuted, even when they had to run for their lives at the time of the persecution of Saul, they impacted all around them because they were salt and light. So that's one of the great emphasis in what Bonhoeffer says. It's about who we are. He says, these people are the salt of the earth in their total existence. You are the light in your whole existence. It's about who you are. And the more and more we go deeper into Christ through the means of grace, the reality of who we are will become more evident to the world around us and impact the world around us. Salt and light. The second thing we see here then from verse 17 to 19 is fulfilling the law. And this is what Bonhoeffer says. He says this, I warn you with tongue in cheek. He says, think ye that I am come to fulfill the law and the prophets? I am not come to fulfill, but to destroy. Many have read and expounded this saying of Jesus as if that were what he said. Of course, Jesus says, I've come not to destroy, but to fulfill. And yet, even within the evangelical church, Bonhoeffer says, there's so many who basically, they mightn't say it out loud, but basically say in their hearts that no longer does the law apply to us today. No longer do the commandments of God apply to us today. That indeed, Jesus has not come to fulfill, but to destroy the law. Now, that was the accusation that was made against Jesus by the, the Pharisees, by the scribes. Uh, you remember the Pharisees, they had 600 additional rules that they had added to the Word of God. And the problem that they had, it wasn't that Jesus was denying the law of the Old Testament. Jesus was denying their interpretation of it and their additional rules. Now, this is what Bonhoeffer says about Israel. He says, it was the error of Israel to put the law in God's place, to make the law their God and their God a law. So basically, they worshiped the law. He says, the disciples were confronted with the opposite danger of denying the law, its divinity altogether, and divorcing God from his law. So, for the likes of the Pharisees, the word Pharisee means separated one, it was all about the law. And as long as you kept their particular slant on the law, that was the important thing. They worshipped the law, but were distant from God. Where Bonhoeffer says the danger for the disciples was they went the other direction, that they said that we will worship God, we'll worship Christ, but we have no place for the law. He goes on and says this, Jesus Christ and he alone fulfills the law because he alone lives in perfect communion with God. It is Jesus himself who comes between the disciples and the law. They find their way to the law through the cross 
of Christ. Now let me just unpack a few things of what he says there. He speaks about how Jesus alone fulfilled the law because he alone lived in perfect communion with God. And what he is emphasizing is that communion with God and the keeping of the law have to go hand in hand. And Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law because he was perfectly in communion with God. And Jesus was perfectly in communion with God because he perfectly fulfilled the law. Communion with the Lord and obedience have to go hand in hand. Now, he says there, it is Jesus himself who comes between the disciples and the law. Do you remember that very fascinating thing that we looked at, was it last week, about how Bonhoeffer spoke to how Jesus was the mediator, not just between man and God, but he is the mediator between the believer and the world around us. In other words, we look at people around us, we look at the world around us through Jesus. We, we come to people, we come into the world through Jesus. In other words, we don't just go directly to the world or directly to the people in our own terms in what we want to do. We do it through Jesus, doing it as his disciples, as his followers, doing it as those who are united to him, that makes all the difference. Now, what he is saying here is Jesus himself comes between the disciples and the law. As we look at the Old Testament law, which is very much what's in mind here, we have to come to it through Jesus. And so, as we think about how this law applies to us today, we look at it through Jesus and through what Jesus has come to do, what Jesus has accomplished. Now, that's very helpful in the sense there are three parts of the Old Testament law. Uh, let's start with a simple part. The, the Ten Commandments is a summary of the moral law, what Jesus and God requires of us. And that still applies today. That still applies to us today. And so we would live the life because we're united to Jesus. We would keep that law. But then there is a civil law, which is the law particularly for Israel. Now, while there are principles that, and I think if a government took on those principles of that civil law, they would learn a lot. It doesn't particularly apply today because we don't have the nation of Israel. There are principles too that can apply to the church. But the most important part is the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, circumcision. And we come and we look at those sacrifices through Jesus. We look at the burnt offering, which was an offering totally burnt off, speaking of Jesus' total commitment to the Father. We look at the fellowship offering, which is about being able to have this relationship with God. We realize this is what Jesus has come to do. And so we look at the Old Testament, looking not that these are sacrifices which we have to do now because Jesus is the final great sacrifice. But we're looking at what they teach us about Jesus and how they apply to Jesus. And so the, the principle there is so important. He says there at the end of that quote, they find their way to the law through the cross of Christ. 
like I was saying there, we, we look at the ceremonial law through what Jesus has done on the cross. But there's another sense where we come to this law through the cross of Christ. In that the only way that we can keep the law, the only way we can keep the Ten Commandments is through the power of the cross, the power of Jesus' death continuing to be applied to our lives. We, we mess up, we, uh, we get angry, we, we get angry and we, we commit murder in our hearts. We go back to the cross and say, Lord, it's only with the power of Jesus' death applied to me. Can I put to death those angry thoughts? Or the lustful thoughts which we'll come to in a moment or two. One final quote in this section. He says, If men cleave to him, that's Jesus, who fulfilled the law and follow him, they will find themselves both teaching and fulfilling the law. He puts this tremendous argument here is that remember being a disciple, you're joined to Christ. You're united to Christ. How can we be united to the Jesus who has fulfilled the law, who has perfectly obeyed the law. How can we claim to be his follower? How can we claim to be his disciple? How can we claim to be one with Jesus and not be serious about fulfilling the law, about keeping the law? And he says there are those who cleave to him, those who are united to Jesus, who long for Jesus as a deer pants for the water, those who thirst for him. It's they who are in part to keep the law. And so when you look at the Ten Commandments, it's not that you roll up your sleeve and you decide, I'm just going to go to these commandments, I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to keep these Ten Commandments. No. You go to the Ten Commandments, but you go to them through Jesus. You go to them with Jesus. You go to them poor in spirit and say, Lord, I can never keep these up. No other gods before me. Lord, I could never do that. Except Jesus enables me. So we go to the commandments. We seek to obey them, but we do so through Jesus cleaving to him. So salt and light, fulfilling the law. And then thirdly, we come to hatred in verses 21 to 26. And he says this here, every idle, <coughs> excuse me, every idle word which we think, sorry, every idle word which we think so little of betrays our lack of respect for our neighbor and shows that we place ourselves in a pinnacle above him and value our own lives higher than his. The angry word is a blow struck at our brother, a stab at his heart. It seeks to hit, to hurt, and to destroy. So he's emphasizing where Jesus says, murder isn't just the actual act of murder. Murder is something that can be done in our hearts it's something that can be done with our tongues. The angry word is a blow struck at our brother. 
that stab at his heart. It seeks to hit, to hurt, and to destroy. Remember Jesus, we're just thinking there, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus has come to fulfill the law by coming into our lives. As Paul says, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And Jesus comes into our lives to change our hearts. He puts the law of God deep within there. So not only that we don't go around killing people, uh, which is always a good start, uh, but we don't go around hating people. We don't go around stabbing people with our tongues. And so that is achieved through the relationship with Christ. And when we're angry, when we do feel that sense of hate coming in us, we take it to Jesus. And we wrestle and we plead with grace. Because his passion and what we see in Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking the the commandments so much further than the scribes and the Pharisees. He said in that previous section, which would have absolutely shocked the Jews, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, there was a, a Jewish saying in those days that if only two people would get into heaven, one would be a scribe and one would be a Pharisee. They were the elite. They were the holy of holies. And Jesus says, you need a righteousness that is above that. Now, that righteousness that is above theirs, it's partly talking about how we trust in Jesus and his righteousness, justification through faith. He's talking about that. But I think he also has the point of this righteousness within. He saw the, the Pharisees as these whitewashed sepulchers outside the lagoon, but inside they were rotten. That is not what his people are to be. His people are to be the genuine article. Living good lives, yes, but in the inside, in the heart. Not hatred, but love. Next we quote and put up here, he says, When a man gets angry with his brother and swears at him, when he publicly insults or slanders him, he is guilty of murder and forfeits his relationship to God. He erects a barrier not only between himself and his brother, but also between himself and God. Now, why does having this anger with a brother create a barrier between us and God? Well, remember that the heart, that inner being where that anger dwells and lives, that's where we trust that God, that Christ lives within us through the Spirit. And he doesn't want to dwell with that which is sinful and bitter and cruel. And so this anger not only impacts our relationships horizontally, it impacts our relationship with God. He goes on, he says this here, if we despise our brother, our worship is unreal. 
and it forfeits every divine promise. When we come before God with hearts full of contempt and unreconciled with our neighbors, we are both individually and as a congregation worshiping an idol. Now, what does he mean by that? That when we come with hearts which aren't right, we're worshiping an idol. What he means by that is we're not worshiping the true God because you cannot come and give acceptable worship to the true God and hold contempt in your heart to your neighbor, to your brother, your sister in Christ. And so you come into worship, you're as sound as a pound, your theology's all right, your doctrine's good. But if you come with hatred towards your brother or sister and think that that worship is accepted, you're worshiping an idol. You're worshiping a God who doesn't care about that bitterness, that anger that's within. That's an idol. That's a false God. Because the one true God, he really, really cares about our hearts, our attitude to others. Can you see why this can never be cheap grace? Can you see how being a disciple of Jesus, being a true Christian of Christ, it's not an easy thing. It's a tough thing. And we have to come before the Lord. We have to be examining our hearts. We have to be honest with him about what lurks within. And this brings us to our final point here, which is the lust in verses 27 to 32 and follows naturally along. Bonhoeffer says, adherence to Jesus allows no free reign to desire unless it be accompanied by love. He makes such a distinction between lust and love. I think that is something that needs to be, something which needs to be emphasized again and again. You think of a, a man who's married to his wife and then he goes off with another woman, but it's love. That's not love. That is lust. He goes on and says this, the gain of lust is trivial compared with the loss it brings. You forfeit your body eternally for the momentary pleasure of eye or hand. When you have made your eye the instrument of impurity, you cannot see God with it. Bonhoeffer talks about, you know it talks about if your eye offends you or causes you to sin, pluck it out. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now we know that that is symbolic. But Bonhoeffer says, you know, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't quickly dismiss the absolute seriousness of that. Now he doesn't believe you should be plugging your eye out because at the end of the day, you have another eye to see and to lust with and that. But he says, we are not to diminish this. 
absolutely drastic action needs to be taken against sin in our lives. We need to do whatever we can so that sin is cut out. And he says there about, and isn't this the way the devil works? He says, the gain of lust is trivial. But the devil pictures us that the lusts and the desires, oh, those are, will promise you and bring you so much. He magnifies the enjoyment that they will bring. And then he diminishes the consequences of sin in regards to the judgment of God. He goes on and says this, Jesus does not impose intolerable restrictions on his disciples. He does not forbid them to look at anything, but bids them to look on him. If they do that, he knows that their gaze will always be pure, even when they look upon a woman. And you see the point again? It's not just by going directly to the commandment and trying to fight against the sin ourselves. It's deviating to the Lord. It's gazing upon the Lord. If you just have a commandment, do not lust. As soon as I say that expression, do not lust, what comes into your mind? The word lust comes into your mind. Where you have to have, look on the Lord. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And it's coming back to this idea that when you look upon the Lord, when you have that right relationship with the Lord, and then you come to a woman, you're coming to that woman through Jesus. You're coming to that woman with Jesus. You're coming with purity. You're coming in an honorable way. Doesn't mean we ever be careless in this. But it does mean we understand how this works. It's not in our power. It's not in our strength. It's in that life in Christ. It's in that life as a disciple. It's in that life of a relationship with Jesus. It's that life of Jesus in us that enables us to combat the sin. He says this here. He says, Paul, speaking of those who belong to Christ, says that they have crucified their body with its affections and lusts. People sometimes say, I cannot help how I feel. I cannot help what I desire. I don't think Paul agrees with you. When you feel in a wrong way, when you desire what is wrong, where do you take it? You take it to the cross. You take it to the Jesus of Calvary. And you remind yourself that being a Christian means your sin, your flesh, your fallen nature is crucified with Jesus. And Jesus gives us the victory over those affections and lusts. I was saying on Monday night, I think I've used this probably numerous times, it's how in our hearts and lives, there's this battle between the good and the bad. And an old Indian Christian says it's like two dogs fighting. And which dog wins? It's a dog that you feed. And so there are two aspects of this. We have to feed righteousness. We have to feed 
our relationship with Jesus through the means of grace. And we have to put to death the old Puritan phrase, mortify. Put to death. Don't give any error. Don't give any oxygen to our sin to let it breathe. Don't have a second look. Don't put ourselves in the place of temptation. It's resisting it. As we just conclude this this evening, Jesus' understanding of the law, it was a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Do you understand that word law can be used in at least two different ways? We think of the law as the the commandments in the land, uh, 30 miles an hour, don't go over 30 miles an hour, uh, don't do this, don't do that. We think of law as commandments. But then we think of law in a different way. We think of the law of gravity, which if an object is dropped, it falls. It's a, a law in regards how this world works. And when it speaks about I will put my law within them. The Lord is speaking of both of those. He will put his commandments in us. He will give us an understanding, a fresh awareness and knowledge of what he says we should do and what he says we shouldn't do. And in Jesus, he gives us that fresh understanding as he does here in the Sermon on the Mount. But he also does that second thing. He puts a new law within us. A new law which causes us, it's a power, it's an influence, it's a strength to do the right thing. So it's not me in my feeble little strength, not me with my puny little efforts taking on sin and the devil. It's the power of this new law. It's the power of this new nature. It's the power of Christ within me and how do I experience that more and more I experience it more and more as I cleave to him that term to cleave echoes Genesis 2 for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife I think it's the some of the old translations he will cleave that word cleave, it's a, it's a very active word. It's a covenant word. It speaks of commitment. It literally means to, to catch by hot pursuit. That's sort of the idea. How do we be a holy people? How do we overcome sin? We cleave to Jesus. We pursue Jesus. We seek him day after day after day. We seek to know him in a deeper way. We were looking at the young adults group on Monday night about the transfiguration, about Peter, James, and John witnessing Jesus being changed into this glorious brightness. And one of the questions we considered was, can we experience anything like that today and a couple of things that I mentioned this is we have to be careful 
we don't just be chasing experiences. But also we need to be careful that we don't settle for a level of Christianity, for an experience of Christ, for a relationship with Jesus, which is much lower, much lower than what we can have through grace. Let's just long to know him more and more. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your precious word. Father, we want to thank you for the challenge tonight about being the salt and the light. And we realize it isn't something that happens just to be us determining or deciding we want to be more salty or we want to be brighter lights. Father, it comes from who we are in Jesus. It comes from our knowledge and experience of Christ. We think of the picture that Jesus gave of him being the vine and his people being the branches. And just that idea that from the vine, that life-giving, that fruit-giving power of the sap would just flow into the branches. And just grant in our lives as individual Christians, grant, Father, for us as a church that we would know more of that power, that life-giving sap of Christ just flowing in us bringing fruit into our lives so we will be the salt and the light that this world so badly needs. Oh, Father, give us that hunger, give us that thirst. For Jesus we pray. In his name.